0: Quote a home and car bundle today at progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12 month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. Hi, I'm Debbie Melman. Canva is
1: great for designing visual content for work, no matter what industry or department you work in. at canva.com, designed for work. This
0: is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com. For 11 years now, Debbie Millman has been talking with designers and other creative types about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about.
2: On this podcast, Debbie Millman talks with Eileen Miles about poetry, fame, and politics. We're going to find out what resistance means now. Never in my adult life have I had this kind of challenge. Here's Debbie Melman.
1: I am always hungry and wanting to have sex. This is a fact. That's the opening of Eileen Miles's poem, Peanut Butter. If you haven't read Eileen Miles' writing, please start. It's blunt, it's open, it's funny, it's moving, and there's a lot of it. More than 20 books of it, in fact. She started off in the East Village poetry scene in the 1970s, and for decades, she's been famous in the poetry world. Very recently, she vaulted to a new level of renown when the Amazon show Transparent modeled a character on her who read her poems. It's a rare and wonderful thing when a poet makes waves in popular culture, and Eileen Miles has done just that. She's here to talk about her life as a poet, her role as a highly outspoken feminist, and yes, about the election. Eileen Miles, welcome to Design Matters. Hi, Debbie. Pleasure to be here. You've described yourself as kind of a cheery, melancholic.
2: Mm -hmm. How are you feeling these days? Um, I would say about there. For some reason, I think as I was about here, just getting here today, I thought, oh, I feel strangely great. But... I mean, I think it's a lot to feel completely anxious and concerned about right now.
1: You grew up in working class Boston mm-hmm. and stated that it gave you a kind of inherent self-consciousness. And you said that you grew up understanding that you were smart, but also understanding that other people didn't think so. Mm-hmm.
2: Um, did anybody tell you that? What gave you the sense that other people didn't think you were smart? My one really powerfully sad anecdote when I was in junior high, I took an IQ test. And I remember taking the test and what great pleasure it gave me, you know, looking at my feet and trying to figure out because it was all sorts of, you know, mechanical reasoning. It was all sorts of things. And I went to Catholic school and at some point the nun called me up to her desk and said, you know, we've gotten the result of that IQ test and you have the highest IQ of the entire seventh grade. She goes, wow. And she goes – it was a big school, too. It was a couple hundred kids. She goes – but she said – and I just um, – I shouldn't be telling you this, but I was surprised because from the faces you make, I thought you were mentally retarded. <laughs> it was like oh my God. so horrible. And then I went home and told my mother, and she just went, I lean. Like I was lying. <laughs> I was just like this funny, funny, smug feeling. Like I thought, okay, I'm like a genius. But nobody believes me, you know, oh <laughs> or God. or I look really stupid, <laughs> so I, it was just a lot at once. You graduated
1: from the University of Massachusetts in 1971, and I understand when you were growing up, you first wanted to be a scientist. And then over the years, you've had myriad jobs, including driving a cab, waitressing, working at Filene's basement, selling sneakers at Paragon, and working at a hospital taping electrodes to people's jaws and head mm-hmm. so you could watch their dreams. Mm-hmm. Um, so I have two questions. When did you decide you wanted to be a writer or a poet? And second, did you learn anything about people's dreams <laughs> when mm. you were doing the electrodes? Yeah,
2: no. You know, it was, it, it was somehow stumbling from a science goal to uh, maybe soft science to psychology to, you know, like doing well in my first World literature class, our second one, and and being in a being in a situation where we were have there was like discourse, which was not part of the Catholic school education, you know, and so I, I think I had a wonderful professor who had us keep notebooks as our responses to literature, and so for the first time I was in a dialogue with somebody about, it, and I remember this professor responding, sort of fantastically to my notebook, and I mean I think he said something simple like I love your mind, and it was just like. You know, and that that it had happened through this, you know, the transom of keeping a notebook. And I I, I think they were just everything started to go over to that side of things, it seemed like. And I think I've made decisions that way perpetually in my life where when I start to notice finally where things are, I think then I'll go there.
1: You moved to New York City in 1974 to be a poet. Mm -hmm. And you said that all of your life people have asked you what you do and you say that you're a poet and they just kind of look at you like you've said
2: you're a stripper. Still? Or, no, they look at you like you said you were a mime. It would be <laughs> cool worse. if they looked at you if you were they thought you were a stripper. They just <laughs> thought, why I mean it was just like, what does that person do? I mean, even to you know, to, early earlier today I had a conversation with somebody and there was somebody taking pictures and then he was like, Well, what do you do all day? And I just thought, that's so strange. Well, what do you do all day? You know? Part of what's interesting about being a poet is that nobody knows you know, that it's sort of like what people don't get is that it's almost like you're like a professional human. In what way? What do you mean? You know, in the same way that there are like epic poems, right? And there would be a hero, but really the hero of the epic poem was the poet, the one who wrote the story, you know, who who gave mind to the saga, kind of. And I think that you're still that person, you know, except that the saga is kind of a day, is kind of a postmodern day, and you're sort of in it, kind of telling the story of it, you know, and it doesn't have to be a linear story, but you're just kind of (laughs) saying what's—I'm making a mime gesture—you're kind of saying what's here. (laughs) You are. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's like a very ordinary but like very necessary and sort of completely surreal and phenomenal job. And yet I think that is the job of the poet.
1: You've written about how you walked into the Viselka Cafe in October of 1975. And met the late New York poet, Paul Violi, who invited you to a workshop at St. Mark's Church. And you went and wrote this about the experience. Suddenly, the rest of my history came out of that accidental moment. I met Allen Ginsberg, and I thought I must be in the right place. Every situation spawns another one. And those were the ones that I had, the lives I had. What do you think your life would have been like if you hadn't met Paul?
2: I mean, I I so much wrote my novel Inferno to say what it was like to be a female coming into New York as a poet in the 70s, you know, because every dude had some book you should read. I mean, to quote the art critic Peter Sheldahl, he said, I think he was talking about art in the 80s, and he said there was no top of the heap. There were just a lot of little heaps on the top. (laughs) And that's how the poetry world sort of always was and was then. So it was just like it was a question of what other pile I could have wound up in. But Paul was my guide into all the, you know, like, quote, other schools of poetry at the time. I mean, I, we didn't consider other. It was like Black Mountain. It was Beat. It was New York School. It was everything that was sort of not the mainstream American canon of literature, you know. So that was the right place, and I, hopefully I would have found it some other way. But Paul was the guide. You have said that you feel funny about being in the New York School, and you prefer, I believe you said, the folk folk poet school. <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, I just—I think I'm just sort of wanting to be a little more, maybe even more vernacular. I mean, even the New York School is kind of precious and like, we're about art, you know, and, and I want that to be less true. In an interview
1: in the Paris Review, you stated, I've made myself homeless. I've cut myself off from anything I knew prior to living in New York. I did this to myself so I know exactly how it happened. <laughs> Do you do you think this was a necessary component to you becoming the writer you are now?
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think that we're always translating, right? You know, and I think, again, I think any of us who come from another class on any level can't stay home and do, you know, or make. You have to take what you have someplace else. I mean, I've even, in the poetry world, I've done that with, I mean, basically importing male avant-garde styles into kind of a queer or a lesbian World, So that I I feel like I've operated a lot like a translator of styles and, and, and realities or even bringing a lesbian reality into, you know, the poetry world. I think between me and Jill Soloway, we've brought more lesbian content into the mainstream than there's been in a while. Jill Soloway, of course, the creator
1: of the television show Transparent. Right. Let's talk for a few minutes about Allen Ginsberg. You've written quite a bit about his epic poem Howl and have stated that these are some of your favorite lines. Who lit cigarettes in boxcars, 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 racketing through snow toward lonesome farms in grandfather night? What is it about those lines that move you so much? Well, it's really the boxcars,
2: boxcars, boxcars, you know. I, I think love the way you
1: say that, boxcars. Awesome.
2: <laughs> Why, thank you. I mean, it's it's just the metonymy of poetry. And I think he was, I mean, he was a poet, very influenced by film, by TV, by the media. And he used the kind of ancient and cantatory Way of poetry, and and of course it just it does the movement of the train across America. Plus, it carries the part that people don't talk about. I think with Howell, as far as I know, is they don't talk about its relationship to the Holocaust. You know, those box cars are carrying lots of Jews to the camps. I can't imagine being a a Jew in America in the 50s and not thinking about that. You stated
1: that Ginsburg was the first poet to send out press releases and that he knew all about marketing and media. Uh Did that influence you in any way?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Because I think he believed that if you have an important message, you've got to get it out. Walt Whitman believed that, too. Patti Smith believed. I mean, that's part of what I loved and felt and saw about Patti, that trembling thing where, you know, like I'm full of this thing and I've got to get it out,
1: you know. You published your first book of poetry on a mimeograph machine mm-hmm. in 1978. Where did you make it? How did you distribute it? Where is it now? Where can we find it?
2: Um, probably, let's see. I wonder. Some college libraries have it. I don't know which ones. You know, w- they all have special collections. And um, and I'm probably, about, I'm kind of in the archival moment, so I probably will be sending all of my crap to some college library soon. But it was the, it was the mimeo machine at St Mark's Church. A poet named Jim Brody, who was like, you know, second, third generation New York school, had a a press, I think it was called Jim Brody Books. You know, he was like, why don't you have a book? And I don't know why you should have a book. And he ran, and and there was supposed to be 200 copies, but somehow we ran out of paper at 160. And then he just kind of handed them to me. And then I just, you know, mailed them out and had a book party and did everything knew to do at that time. Did you design the cover? No. And I was really I mean, my first couple of books were designed by other people. And I was very unhappy with the results. And I've been like a pit bull I have a sense about that. I saw you did the lettering on both of your new releases, your re-releases. Yes. Uh, but we'll talk about that little
1: in a little while. Um, you gave your first reading at CBGB's on the Bowery in New York City.
2: What was that like? What did you read? Um, you know, I can't, I mean, I I can sort of remember-ish what poems I, you know, it was whatever the, whatever little pile of poems I regarded as my poems at that time. And, uh, you know, and it was just this thing It was like the language of poetry it's like, you, there are open mics. And then if they're, if you're any good, they were like, would you like to do a feature? You know, and then you get to read 10 minutes or a half hour or whatever the thing is. I just remember this very intense spotlight and sitting alone on stage and feeling like there was nothing outside of that light and being so scared. And then afterwards feeling like that was one of the greatest feelings in the world.
1: What do you think of your early work? Do you look back on it and feel nostalgic, proud, horrified?
2: Um, nostalgic and proud, not ever horrified. I feel like I know what I meant and I knew, like I'll read a poem now or a little piece from Chelsea Girls and I'll know, I'll just notice how there's a whole novel in that short piece. Like, I mean, I think it's in the DNA of everything you write is everything else you're ever going to write. Really? I think so.
1: I always have a hard time looking back on things that I've done, and maybe it's because they're just not finished.
2: Yeah, you don't know. I mean, I think when you're younger, you don't know what editing means. Right, <laughs> that's true. You know. In 1994,
1: you published your first collection of short stories, Chelsea Girls, and last year, HarperCollins reprinted it. Paris Review described Chelsea Girls as a nonfiction novel or fictional nonfiction. <laughs> um, you've described it as
2: a series of short autobiographical films. Is the book fully autobiographical? Well, I don't know what fully means. You know what I mean? I think, um, I mean, I just feel like once you put pen to paper or start typing in whatever format, on some level, you're lying. You know what I mean, I think in what way? Well, I just think that it isn't the thing. It's a symbol of the thing. you know, the way language is simply symbolic. so you're you're reducing and expanding and and distorting and translating right away. The act of writing is a translation and even a form of blindness, you know there's a piece that you wrote earlier in the year
1: for New York Magazine about love. yeah, and in the piece, you have contradictory lines about, no, that didn't happen or did that happen. And I loved the sort of playing with time and memory. Mm-hmm. And I think you do that really beautifully. Um, Robert Maplethorpe took the gorgeous and hypnotic photograph of you that is on the cover of the new edition. And he took the photo of you in 1980. You describe him in the following way. Robert Maplethorpe was cute, the kind of boy I really like, slightly evil looking with black curly hair. Mm-hmm. What was it like working with him?
2: It was an education in um, kind of contrast and power and control because he was so warm and so engaging and so unassuming to meet. So he did all that kind of warming you up and talking you up and chatting you up and this and that. And then we went into the studio and it was all cold and it was just turn your head, move your head, sit there. And it was so interesting that I was completely able to let him dominate me in that way because I trusted him from the first encounter. And so it was just, it was very, uh, I was like, oh, that's how that works. How did he get that look out of you? Year, years later, I saw other pictures from the same shoot and they were completely different and they look like a different person, you know? And I don't know if it's, that's what my face is like, but, you know, so I, yeah, my answer is I don't know. It just, I just know that at any moment you're many people and so that was one of them. Yeah, I was sort of, and I and I was a mess. I was so messed up that morning. I'm sure there was some cleaning up well, you said that I, – I read that you were you were either drunk or high when you took the photo. Yeah? I over – I over, you know, the whole thing, I was just like I, – I overslept. I was late. He was so easygoing about it because I was like about an hour late and just arrived feeling – you know, dirt. I don't think I showered. It was like dirty and <laughs> the whole – you know, hungover, hardly awake. What was the photo originally for? It was for um, a John Giorno record. It was, it was called um, – sugar, alcohol, and meat, I think. And it was like, and so the cover was John Ashbery, William Burroughs, and John Cage. And then inside were the young uns and it was myself and Tom Carey and Barbara Barg. And and Robert was like very, you know, like, if you want to print, come and get one. And I knew I wanted to print, which my friends didn't know. So I think... Um, and then you gave, I think, a copy
1: to your mom, who put it in a frame... And then you asked for it back when you took it out. Underneath the picture was a picture of your brother and his family. And you felt like there was a really intense contrast between you and that picture in that moment and the sort of warm,
2: sort of familial. Yeah, she seemed much more charmed by the family picture. In the same way that I went home once in the first year I was in New York. And I remember raving to her that I had met Allen Ginsberg. And we were watching TV together. And she was like, "Uh uh-huh. And then – TV commercial came on, and it was um, it was an Alpo commercial, and Brooke Alderson, who is a actor comedian, who is married to Peter Sheldahl, who I knew, was in the Alpo commercial, and I was like, "Whoa, that's Brooke!" And my mother turned, she goes, "You know her?" And I said, "I do." And she goes, "Well, maybe you could get something." You wow! Know? And it was just like <laughs> she was so much more excited about the Alpo commercial than Allen Ginsberg, you know, which was so great. I remember telling Brooke that, and she just was like. You know. <laughs>
1: Um, In one of the last chapters of Chelsea Girls, you describe a rather brutal gang rape scene in this way. Rape was the first sex I ever heard of. Some girl tied to a telephone pole down by spy pond. It seemed to always happen in nature. Choking. I had a lot of cocks shoved in my mouth, hoots getting fucked with cold hot dogs. There was pancake batter all over the place. I remember my wool plaid pants being off, being white. It was cold. Eileen, were you writing about yourself in this story?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's very horrifying to hear you read that. Um, I'm sorry, it's okay. It's okay. I mean, it's sort of it's funny. I've thought a lot about that chapter in the book. And figuring out how to bring it into the present because with all the kind of, you know, the rape culture that we're in, conscious of now, uh, my response always is I am that girl, you know. And so I I have a particular um, relationship to it. That was the best I could do at that time, you know, which was to present it in this sort of dreamlike way, which was kind of, you know, I mean I was in a grayout when this thing occurred. So that is kind of the way I apprehended it.
1: How do you get over something like that? Or do, do you ever?
2: Well, I don't, no, I don't think you do. I think you, I think you figure out how to be in the world. I mean, when I was young, I didn't, I, you know, I was so unequipped to deal with it. You know, I didn't go to a shrink. I had nobody I talked to. Nothing ever happened to the boys? No. Oh, my God. You, that wouldn't even be, I mean, it was at the time, it was my fault. And it was just that simple. That's what happens if you're a girl who drinks. That's kind of what you deserve. And I think the girls who were involved, who were there, everybody everybody had a story. One person was out getting a pizza. Another person was too drunk. Another person said, I thought you liked it. You know, another person said she was scared. I mean, everybody had all the other ways of being female, you know, but it was nobody's job to stop it. You
1: go on to state that everything that you did was something to try to fix you. With all my heart, I was trying to be dead.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: How... Did you not die
2: in that period of your life? Um, I just – I think I'm lucky. I think I'm lucky. And I think – I mean I think that somehow creativity isn't my favorite word in the world. It always seems like my creativity always seems so corny. But I do think – if I think about being young, being – you know, the really hard ages for me were like 19, 20, 21, 22, 23. Really till I came to New York and then the first year or so of New York was a little rough. But it was just that gap where will I survive – you know, and it was about that. It was about sexuality. I mean, it was about becoming a writer. And and it was also struggling with alcoholism and drug addiction and all that, you know, and food issues. You know, like the whole the whole cocktail of, of being female at that moment in time and throwing in that, that experience. It happened to me. And so I think that I was sort of on the verge of a nervous breakdown a lot. And I didn't know what to do except to keep moving. And so I remember moving to San Francisco when I was um, – Twenty-two, and you know, living alone, or living, or living um, in Cambridge with girlfriends, you know, friends um, after college, and just always having, you know, like always drinking too much, and then trying not to, and so kind of detoxing, but not knowing that that's what I was doing, and so just kind of going nuts, and and being on the verge of hallucinations, and you know, hearing the whole, I mean, the whole thing, and the only thing I could come out of that with. Every time was that if you're not creative, your creativity is going to use you. you know what I mean? I just yes. was well aware of the fact that the only way to stop hallucinations was to write hallucinations. I feel like that's where the poetry came in. And it just, you know, it took a collective situation, which is what I found at St. Mark's and in the poetry community, to kind of ground me. You know, because what I never had was a group. I never had a group of artists. I never had a group of crazy people. You know, I mean, I've had gangs when I was a teenager, but somehow finding one that was really about going ahead with this thing, you know, and then later on when it was, you know, a group of gay people and finding yourself collectively has always been the most powerful thing for me. In 1982, you gave up drinking Uh and you've said that
1: if you hadn't given up drinking, you'd be dead. And I've said 33 has been a magic number for me for so many years, because in a way it was the year that I died When I first got sober and I walked through New York, I felt like a ghost. How did you begin to feel alive again?
2: Well, it's sort of like the waters recede when you drink and drug a lot. And coming back from that, your body, your psyche, your everything is utterly confused. Your sexuality, I mean, like every bit of it had to kind of come awake. You know, that's a physical process. That's a spiritual process. That's an emotional process. So, you know, I had lots of support. I increasingly had friends who were doing the same thing as me. And so we talked about it. I mean that was a big piece It was figuring out how to talk, not just about recovering but to talk, period. Because what I didn't know – I mean like obviously some of the stuff that I went through when I was younger meant that drugs and alcohol were my salvation. They kind of made it so I could feel the things I felt and then go forward and be bold in some way, you know. So it's just like – They both were salvation. To get drunk was salvation. To get sober was salvation. Did your writing change after you stopped drinking? It got wider, I think. I mean, like, I think in life, the road gets narrower. On a certain level, you know, we become something, we become somebody, and you specialize and specialize and specialize. But I think that when, when we're talking about doing anything in the grips of an addiction, it's sort of like the room just starts to get really small, you know? And so I could write poems, and the poems were getting worse. I mean, they were getting stupid and bad and dull, and, you know, like I just had less access to my interiority. So when I got sober, it was just sort of silly and loose at first, and I, you know, it took about seven months for me to start to get a feeling that I knew my instrument again. And then it was different, of course. I remember when I was drinking and drugging, I just felt like my mind was kind of dirty, and there were all these interesting shelves where I could leave stuff and put this note here and, you know, everything. It was just like a messy room that I was familiar with. And when I got sober, it was just like I had been washed. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, whoa, where am I? And then I had to find new habits. And and I so had to be much more about my process rather than there being some imaginary place, you know. In an interview in
1: New York Magazine, you said you thought Chelsea Girls was going to change your life, but it didn't. Mm -hmm.
2: What were you hoping for or expecting to happen that didn't? I think – I mean some of the ver- – I mean like it's really – you know, like so the last year I've gotten a ton of attention, you know. And I, I wanted to say – you know, in the introduction you were saying something about it was like I was, you know, this famous in poetry and then television and then kaboom. But it really wasn't like that. It was just actually the books came out and for some reason – and I do not know what or how – those books just got a hell of a lot of attention. And that went on till December and then trans- – so just when it should have died down – It doubled down. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So I just – I want to say the books came first. It wasn't TV, though TV was amazing. But um, I think I want – I mean I wanted and expected something like that when I was 44 years old, not a kid. You know, when I finished Chelsea Girls, when it came out, I thought uh, I've written On the Road for Girls. Let's do it. I'm I'm here. I'm down. And it was just like – it was culty. It was well-received. People loved it. But that didn't happen. And so I was a little bit devastated. Like I thought, so whatever happens, you know, like what what is ever the result of anything? You know, and I think what I didn't understand, I didn't actually know how to tour a book. I had no idea. You know, It's it's very deliberate action in a way. And I didn't know how to do that yet. Well, it seems a lot of what
1: you might have expected to happen in 94 is – really now. It's happening now. And But in an article about you in Interview Magazine, the writer stated, I I thought this was interesting, the writer stated that it's as if the literary establishment is finally willing to admit that you're one of our great living poets and writers. And a headline in The Observer stated, after decades of relative anonymity, (laughs) the cult poet gets her due. Right, right. So nothing's really changed. I mean, it's just the press
2: that's aware. Yeah, well, I think there wasn't a story before. I mean, what could the story be? Every time I get recalled a punk poet, I feel like what they're saying is she's a working class or she's a dyke, and we don't want to see either one of those things. So we'll call <laughs> her a punk, because I'm not a punk. You know, I just, I mean, I'm sort of... A, you
1: have an edge. Yeah, but
2: I'm so, <laughs> I mean, I'm sort of of that generation, I think. But I think the thing that's funny is, really, we're talking about, we're talking about economics. We're talking about there's... An indie world in publishing, which doesn't get acknowledged like indie in music, mm-hmm. does. Right. It's like we still call it small press, which is really corny and out of date, you know, when we talk about poetry and poetry publishing. But I was very much in the indie world of poetry, and then I was picked up by the mainstream, you know, mm-hmm. in my 60s. And so there's a story, you know, And there wasn't a story before, so you couldn't sell something without a story. I read that you
1: asked yourself, when are they going to know that I'm me? <laughs> I love that line. I love that line. And you also said that you'd felt in your heart that you would make a living doing this if you just stuck to it yeah. long enough. Yeah. Did you ever feel
2: like giving up? Was that ever an option? Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm a, sort of a depressive, so it's just like— You're a about, cheery
1: melancholic. Exactly.
2: <laughs> so about 17 times a day, I would consider, you know, and I think there's great things like going to the gym or— All the things that you do to kind of get yourself out of a funk. But it's just like I prefer working or doing. I mean, I kind of write because I'm kind of crazy. And so it it gives order to my disorder.
1: Now that you're more broadly well-known, I find it so interesting that you finally had one of your poems published in The New Yorker. Right. and you, Could be the last. We're waiting. <laughs> you describe it as follows. I've sent poems to The New Yorker for about 30 to 40 years through three different editors. Not every day or every year, but it would strike me every now and then that it was something that I ought to do. So how did you feel when you saw your work in The New Yorker?
2: It was nice. There still is that wall with Poetry, And I keep thinking I've passed the fame wall so that it isn't, quote, poetry, it's Eileen Miles. But I haven't figured that one out, you know. In fact, speaking of, I think fame is sort of an interesting topic. So I read at Princeton with um, Stephen King. And so I thought, this is so funny. I'm, I'm telling everybody, I'm reading with Stephen King. This is hysterical. And it was really the luck of the draw. It wasn't that I don't think it was like Eileen Miles and Stephen King. But what happened was I get to Princeton. I'm walking upstairs to the theater, and there's some young woman out front passing things out and stuff. And she smiling at me, and, and she goes, are you here for the Stephen King reading? Oh. And I thought, oh, that's what happens. You know, it's sort of like just when you think you're a dick, there's a bigger dick. You know. <laughs> <laughs> Well,
1: you've written that you were a poet born in the era of Andy Warhol and a generation that wanted to be famous. Mm -hmm. But you've said this about being famous. Fame is a Xerox machine. The culture produces all these strange copies of you, none of which are really you. And you go on to state, I just had to make myself be Eileen Miles and let that be my shield. So it's somewhere between constructing and believing. And I've been living that construction for as long as I can remember. But even before I was a poet, who hasn't been making up a self? How does one have a self? And I think that's such a great question. You said not who am I, but what am I?
2: Do you feel differently now that you're more well-known? Yes and no. It's sort of – it's weird. It's like the same things happen at a different level, like the mm-hmm. Stephen King story. It's really funny. Was he nice to you, by the way? He was very sweet. But, <laughs> you know, and he liked my work a lot. We had a nice time reading together. We exchange books. And then I get to my hotel room and I open the book to see what he wrote. And he spelled my name wrong. Oh. <laughs> and, and I just thought it's just never ending, you know, and it's not him. I mean it's just like whatever it is that I go through being a multiple, he goes through at another level. So I think that it's it always like – an exercise in humility in some ways just to be here and to be comfortable and to and to keep operating. In
1: 2009, you wrote a book of essays titled The Importance of Being Iceland. And you wrote that after you became sober, you began performing instead of reading your poems and even tried talking for a while and improvising after being moved by performers like Spalding Gray. And talking led you to running for political office. And in 1992, you conducted an openly female write-in candidacy for president against George Bush. Mm
2: -hmm. What made you do this? I've lately been thinking about the fact that I think I was a little unhappy. I think my girlfriend at the time decided to go to grad school, and I was disappointed. So you needed something to do? Well, (laughs) (laughs) let's run for president. So I felt like I needed a new project. I was like, really? So it's not enough to be like artists and lovers together in the East Village. You've got to get an MFA, you know. And I was like, so what is it that I need to do? Exactly, you know. And I think that all these things... Kind of added up to this interesting possibility, you know. It just—I mean—I had seen, you know, Pat Paulson running for president. Funny, funny candidates forever. Jello Biafra running for office, you know. Mostly men, actually. If I think about it, you know. And um, and it did seem like I had been really interested in figuring out how to be political in my work, like authentically political, political in a way that felt like my my work still, but somehow, you know, like that I could feel comfortable with being this dispenser of. Knowledge or information or presence or whatever, you know. So w- with all that and the timing of George Bush and the new language of the political correctness and and you know and I was interested. I was doing imp- like Baldega. I was doing improvisational performance work, and I thought, oh my God, a campaign would be exactly that.
1: You mentioned the words politically correct, and I know that the whole sort of appropriation of that term right. in culture. Um, has pissed you off. Tell me why.
2: Well, it's really funny because it's specifically lesbian language. That's what it was. It was just like in a lesbian community, politically correct meant the most control that would be the person who would stand up at the reading and say, Would that person with the perfume on their body or other animal products please? W-? I mean, there was just like the most <laughs> you know, it was just like I was not a Mitch Fess person and I sort of wish I went. Part of the legend of it was there was a lot of that kind of energy. And so that was our language. And it was so ludicrous and shocking to see our, our Republican president suddenly being use, using this lesbian language against us.
1: Your campaign originated in the East Village and exploded into an effort of national interest. And you said this about it. It was 1991, and there wasn't any possibility that there would be a female candidate, a gay candidate, an artist candidate, a candidate making under $50,000 a year, or a minority candidate. That hasn't changed. <laughs> it hasn't. Well, well aside from, from Barack Obama. Barack Obama being... We had, had, had yeah. one. Yeah. You um, had a flyer for your presidency. And I found it online. And it's titled, Eight Reasons Why You Should Write In Eileen Miles for President in 1992. Would you read it? Yeah, I would love to. Excellent.
2: Eight Reasons Why You Should Write In Eileen Miles for President in '92. These are all bullet points. She will abolish income tax. It's invasive tax assets instead. She will reduce Defense spending by 75 percent, twist our priorities back to its domestic spending. And in, in, in the graphic, it was like a bow tie, you just yeah. could reverse the Under Miles, which I have to say, for some reason, my favorite thing to say is under Miles. Under Miles, we will pay our UN dues and stop vetoing peacekeeping initiatives around the world. She refuses to live in the White House while there are homeless in America. Her vision for America is inclusive, everyone can come. All classes, races, sexes, and sexualities count. As an openly female and queer candidate, she has primary reasons for promoting these groups. A poet, Miles, writes her own speeches. Once elected, she will continue to communicate with the American people. She will create a department of culture. She guarantees health care for all Americans. Within 90 days of her election, she needs it too. Veto the mainstream, stay outside, Vote for Eileen Miles. Do you know how many votes you got? No, because um, we did go to the Board of Elections and they said something really paltry. And it wasn't until um, Al Gore had his counting episode that we realized that they just don't count. They don't count. If they have to count, they don't count. You know, I mean, I think that when these kind of handwritten votes get to, you know, like – you know, all the precincts, they just – I think they just throw them out.
1: But people in New York were recognizing you. They were telling you that they were voting for you. They saw you – I remember you wrote about being recognized in a bank yeah, as yeah. a presidential candidate.
2: Oh, I mean that's why That's why I wouldn't believe – when they gave me some tiny number of votes, I just thought, well, they've just thrown them away because I could have polled it and found 500 or 1,000 people in New York who voted for me. So – you recently wrote an article for BuzzFeed titled, Hillary Clinton, The Leader You Want When the World Ends. Mm-hmm. Why? Well, I think we're at a completely apocalyptic moment. And I think that moment supposedly elected Donald Trump. I mean, I have a lot of problems with the reality of that fact. But I think, I mean, I think we're at an impossible fond de siècle moment in terms of nations and democracy and the media we use, the kind of information we have, the way we make choices. I mean, I think it's – it's virtu- you know, like there being a right candidate or there being a sense of who will lead us, it's almost impossible to, you know, on some level to take elections that seriously, you know, except that we have to do something, you know. And so I felt like with all those conditions existing, Hillary Clinton was to me the best bet. You know, she seemed highly functional greatly willing, um, female, you know, just, you know, ready, just ready, experienced all the things that it seems like such a job as being the president of the United States would require. So I thought at the end of the world, I'll pick her. In the article,
1: you state, the first time I voted, I voted for Eugene McCarthy, and I knew he wouldn't win, but it felt so great to vote for him, to vote for the right guy, the one who wanted peace. And I voted for Shirley Chisholm next because I loved her, and I just thought how amazing it would be if she was president of the United States. And I understand you still have her campaign button. I do. How are you managing your emotions after Hillary's loss, and what do you feel like is possible to do next?
2: You know, I'm pretty focused on the illegitimacy of the election right now. You know, I mean, I just feel like Trump's already forming his transition team and making choices, but he hasn't been elected by the electors yet. And I just feel like if there was such a great disparity between the exit polls and the numbers that we've come up with, you know, especially in the battleground states in another country, that would be reason for us to challenge the election and to do a recount. And we're not doing anything like that here. You know, I mean, like people like investigative reporters like Greg Pallas have shown that in the battleground states, there were up to like 300,000 votes purged. Votes that would have put her completely over the top. How were they purged? The softening of the Voting Rights Act.
1: OK. you
2: know, So the people that weren't even able to vote. I mean, in many cases, they voted and their votes were thrown out. They were not counted. You know, like Stalin says, it's not who you know wins it's who counts well it's amazing that she's going to be i think upwards of 2 million
1: votes more than trump got and still not the president
2: and i think that have we ever seen the department of justice literally intervene in the election and cast such incredible negative shade on one of the candidates you know and and first cast it remove it Cast it again 10 days before the election and then remove it again. I mean like it's sort of like we're talking about a population that really responds. I mean like my friend Sarah Shulman in her classes in Staten Island said that a lot of her students didn't really understand that their education was funded by the state. And that if Trump cuts taxes for rich people, there'll be less money for their school and they may get their funding cut. They didn't understand that. They didn't know that, you know. So we're really dealing with a population that when they go into the voting booth, they're just being whimsical. These are people who will be highly influenced by some crazy-ass story about emails as opposed to somebody who's a scam artist. Right. You know. So I'm still very wrapped up in undoing the myth of Incredible outsider candidate won no, yeah. he didn't, yeah. I'm having a real hard
1: time with the whole notion of normalizing because I don't think this could ever be normal, right. And I'm and truly frightened about the civil rights violations, the constitutional violations, just the conflict of interest. it It feels to me that it is unthinkable. Mm-hmm. And what really bothers me and and I'm curious to know what you think about this about, The notion that her being a woman didn't impact the results. And I can sort of sense just by your sort of look that you think it's bullshit, (laughs) as I do.
2: And I think (laughs) my greatest disappointment is that during the whole election cycle, not one man, including her own husband, didn't come forward and say, this is sexism. This is about gender. This is about the fact that she's a woman. It's like we can say that till the cows come home as women. And we're just going to be women. We're just being feminists. We're just complaining. I mean one way that the binary could work for us is if a man of any you know, importance in the election or men, a number of men came forward and said, will you wake up? You're responding this way because this candidate is female. Nobody said it. you know. So that was just kind of like the opposite of calling a spade a spade. It just doesn't happen. You know? We couldn't talk about gender in America, and that's how bad it is. That is how bad it is. What are you
1: going to be doing? Is is there anything that you're going to be participating in, running, writing? I mean, it feels like this is the time when
2: artists and poets are most important. I think we're doing it now. I think creating instability in people's belief that this is a valid election is really important work. And I feel like, at this moment, all I know to do is gather information and share it as soon as I have it and hope that there's some possibility that this fool would be yanked out at the last minute and then when that doesn't happen, if that doesn't happen, something else. you know, Just to keep going and keep talking about it and keep... I mean, we're gonna find out what resistance means now Mm -hmm. in a way that I think never in my adult life have I had this kind of challenge.
1: Almost exactly a year ago, you and your former girlfriend, Jill Soloway, authored the Thanksgiving Paris Manifesto, Topple the Patriarchy. And from what I understand, you and Jill were feeling revolutionary after she saw Hamilton and you had both visited the White House. And you've said that writing the manifesto together was an act of passion. Can you share some of the themes of what you wrote and why you wrote it? I think
2: we were enjoying the extreme act of creating um, new requirements for what art making and what – of all sorts, you know, like a, like inviting men to stop making art for 50 or 100 years and <laughs> inviting men to stop making pornography for 100 years. Too. I mean it was just like to go out there and create a whole new space in which um, – Female work would flourish and expand, and men would think twice about going forward into that space, you know? It's just like, I don't know. It's like anything I I say sounds like I'm taking it back, and I don't mean it at all. But I do mean a manifesto. The nature of a manifesto is, is hyperbolic, because what you're trying to do is kind of like, you know, level the playing field and even create the playing field. So I think in different ways, both of us were like wanting to have pleasure, be extreme, Because I think, as in civil rights, and this is civil rights, the problem is an unequal starting place. I mean, that's what the theory of justice is about, you know? And so there's never been justice for women. There's never been a place where men actually aren't making work. So why why don't we start there?
1: If anybody wants to read the manifesto, it is at topplethepatriarchy.com. You have been the inspiration around a number of characters embedded in culture now. You were the model for the character Leslie Mackinac on Jill Soloway's show Transparent. Lily Tomlin's character in the movie Grandma was supposedly based on you and you were quoted as the movie began. There are also rampant rumors. I don't know if you know this one. There are also rampant rumors in certain circles that the character Shane on the L Word was also based on you.
2: How does this make you feel? Oh, that's really funny. Yeah, I've never heard that one. Um, that's really funny.
1: Yeah, I found it in some forums. That's crazy. There was a big,
2: big discussion about it. Yeah. And I think I think the one about Lily Tomlin is untrue, too. I think it was after the fact. Unless, I mean, I just, nobody ever presented it to me that way. Well,
1: your name is is featured throughout the movie in different sort of clandestine in moments and if you're looking for it you see it if you're not looking for it you might not see it right. but in the bookstore and the, yeah. there are a number of scenes where your name
2: pops up yeah but they were about to shoot and they I think they approached me and said can we use your work you know so when they were writing the script you know they were already thinking about me seems unlikely, but so I'm but I'm you know, I'm happy to let the myth expand. It's sort of fun.
1: <laughs> Shane you on know. the L word yeah. I thought was pretty cool too. Yeah. You um. said that Cherry Jones's portrayal of you on Transparent was a better copy of you than yourself. In what way? did I say that? Yes you did. Yes you did. You said that her portrayal of you on transparent was a better copy of you than yourself.
2: Weird. I can't imagine that I – I mean I love that there's that character there and I love I, – I would say Cherry and I are friends at this point in time. But um, meeting her was really fun because there was like a dinner party at Jill's and and they had already been like cutting her hair to look like mine and getting her to dress in some way that was more or less like me. So there was a moment. It was very Prince and the Pauper where she walked in the door and I was standing there and we were looking at each other. And I mean I think um, – it was very gleeful, I think, for both of us.
1: You're sort of hidden in the background in the actual episode. You're on the set. Were you the topless person in a cowboy hat?
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. I'm in, yeah, I'm in, I'm in three episodes, actually. Okay. But um, actually, I don't think it's a better. I mean, I don't know how I. I don't know where or how I said that. But, I mean, I think it's sort of like they just, you know, it became something else because right. I don't think it is a good copy of me. I think it's it's not me. And, yeah, fact, it that was,
1: it, it, she's not quite as sexy as you are.
2: Well, thank you. <laughs> I mean, it just it was very liberating to see it and to think, oh, she's absolutely not me. It's just it's it's they've gone done something else. Let's talk for a moment
1: about your latest effort. I read that you're working on a memoir about your late Pitbull, Rosie. I believe the title is Afterglow. Uh-huh. And when will that be coming out? September of 2017. And you've said that people often downplay the relationship between humans and animals and the validity of that as a deep experience, especially in the literary world. What is your book going to be portraying about your relationship with Rosie?
2: Oh, I mean, everything. It's a. I mean, it's sort of like intimacy, you know? I mean, I think um, in the 16 and three quarters years that I was with this dog, I was— probably in about three or four relationships with adult females, you know. And yet the, the, the one that I was with through all that time consistently was was this dog. And so there's a way in which the dog becomes our truer companion, partner, you know. I mean, it's like we traveled. We did things together. And I present it as a joke or a fantasy. But when I first looked at Rosie, looked in her eyes, I thought, oh, my God, it's my father, you wow. know. My dad was definitely the one who gave me art and said you could do it and saw me and was very incredibly validating and died when he was young and I was young, you know. And so it was so believable to me when I looked at this dog that he would come back and want to be my dog, you know. And so it really became a way to, to write and think about having a pet when she was gone to then think, you know, how did that work? How did she become him? What did that mean? Who else was she? I mean, because I think we all riff on, when we have pets, we just, we fantasize about who they are. Oh, absolutely. I, my dog
1: Duff was, arrived in my life through my dog walker, who was taking care of my other dog at the time. And she was left with my dog walker and the owner never came back. She uh, she was going to be watching the dog. When I saw Duff, I fell in love at first sight. Mm-hmm. And she's been in my life now for 13 and a half years. Mm-hmm. And um, she is really one of the great loves of my life. She, she opened my heart. She actually, in the process of loving her, she opened my heart to what love actually is. It's right. fundamentally changed me. Yeah, yeah. Um, in your latest collection of poems, 356 page opus titled, I Must Be Living Twice, you state in a piece titled, The Poet, the following. I made myself into a poet because it was the first thing I really loved. It was an act of will. I realize now I was always afraid of asking for things from the devil. I would probably get them. (laughs) Did you ever have to ask the devil for anything, Eileen?
2: Yeah, I went into the bar on the crossroads at Highway 61 where... um, Robert Johnson reputedly sold his soul to the devil and I stood in the bathroom and I said take it take it just make me the greatest poet that ever lived. <laughs> I thought this is so crazy from the position of being a Catholic but it was almost like because I knew this, there was this gamble had been made this request had been made before you know and I know about Faust that I thought you know let's do it you know. So yes I feel like I play with the notion of the devil and it's very funny it's like on my block in the East Village, there's a there's a taco shop called um, El Diablo, and so I'm always in there writing poems, and the devil comes walking in all the time, you know. And so there's lots of devil poems in here.
1: Would you consider reading one of your poems from "I Must Be Living Twice"? Yes, I would consider that. Rampant Muse, is that? Yes. Okay, cool. I love that poem.
2: It's like a little bit about Robert Creeley. Do you know that? I I did not know that. He's got a very famous book of poems called For Love. And it's really good. It's really great. And so there was a little bit of – and we're friends. or We were friends. Also, somebody someplace around that time said, da-da-da-da-da, unless you're a rampant lesbian. And I said, and I am.
1: (laughs) How do you become a rampant lesbian? I know.
2: I know. I was like, of course I'm a rampant – what are the kind of – and so my rampant muse for her. Tuesday night, reading for love on my bed. Oh, writing for love, poem is wishing when I stop waiting. One thousand times I've read and wrote, for love, wear my sneakers, drink my bourbon, be 28 in spite of me. In mirrors, Christ, I look fucking old. What does the evening mean? I could fall for lamp, light, radio song, the oval-shaped frame of which he was particularly fond. For love, I would dream when my schemes fall through. Man, could that little girl dance. For love, I will read it 10,000 times. For my tomboy cousin, Jean Marie. For radio song, for love, I would not pity me. My 28, sneak is bourbon. The unseen future of my communications. And the lamplight, her. She holds me here so rampantly in her evening beauty. Thank you, Eileen. Thank you. Josephine Livingston, a
1: writer at Full Stop Quarterly, stated this about you. Aging elegantly is the most mainstream form of the female masculine. Nice. God, I never read that. That's great. (laughs) Thank you so much for joining me today on Design Matters. And thank you for showing us all that beauty and power and purpose can indeed become more potent at any point in a person's life. To find out more about Eileen Miles and her books, you can go to her website, eileenmiles.com. This is the 11th year I've been doing Design Matters, and I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon.
2: Design Matters with Debbie Millman
1: is recorded at the Masters in Branding Studio at the School of Visual Arts in New York City. It is produced by Curtis Fox Productions with technical assistance by Mark Dudlick, published exclusively by designobserver.com. You can subscribe to this free podcast in the iTunes Store.